You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Episode 9 of the Archaeotech Podcast. On today's episode, Doug and Russell interview Chris Cameron, founder of Field Technologies Incorporated, about his app business and running businesses while on the road as a traveling archaeologist. There is an MBA's worth of advice in this episode, and it can be helpful no matter what you are planning to do or are doing with your life. There are a few audio challenges with this episode. Keep in mind that when you hear them, that the three people on here are from Washington State, North Carolina, and Scotland. Sometimes things happen with the signals, and quite frankly, it's kind of amazing it works at all. Now, on to the episode. We hope you enjoy. So, Chris, where, what is your background in? Are you an archaeologist who's now working in computers? Are you a computer scientist who's now working in archaeology? Uh, so, I'm an archaeologist who is now working in computers. Uh, so I, I did. Um, I went to undergrad at UNC Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, uh, and I was actually originally in economics, uh, but also majored in anthropology. And then I went to University College London uh, for my master's in archaeology. Did you do the heritage program, or did you do the archaeology program there? So I did archaeology of the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East. Uh, so you worked with like Andy Bevan and Mark Blake and them? Uh, yeah, I worked uh, quite a bit with uh, Andrew Bevan. So is that how you got in, um, interested in working with sort of computer science and stuff? Because I know um, Dr. Bevan does a lot with GIS, a whole bunch of computer stuff. Um, UCL has a bunch of stuff. I know they have their own web server up there that they play around with and all sorts of stuff. Is that how you got involved or how did you get involved in the more sort of technical computer stuff? Uh, to be completely honest, <laughs> um, no, I, I should actually uh, drop uh, drop Andy an email uh, to see how he's doing. Um, but I was in the field for about seven years. Uh, I met a beautiful woman who, uh, when we got engaged, uh, the deal was that I would be home on the weekends. So my circle of places I could work got smaller. And then when we had uh, our daughter, the deal was that I would be home full time. So uh, I was looking for a way to try out something new, work for myself, but also at the same time stay connected to archaeology because I love it. And I, I, still, uh, I still get out a few times a year to do the odd survey if it's local, uh, just to get some exercise and fresh air. And your technical skills... You said you'd done economics and anthropology and then uh, archaeology of the Eastern Mediterranean. How did you pick up all your different sort of technical skills and working with iPads and stuff like that you're working on now? Yeah, so as far as coding, um, it's um, I guess it's one of those things where I can read other people's work, but I uh, am limited in what I can do myself. We have several developers you know, that are constantly working on stuff here. Uh, for field technologies. So I don't do the heavy lifting for that. I, mean, I do a little you know, Visual Basic and a little Swift, but not. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I did not write most of uh, the app. Um, I mostly can look at other people's work. Um, so, you know, but that's helpful because it means, you know, there's still quite a bit of a learning curve doing that, but it, it means that I can translate what the developers say to what we need. Uh, and uh, take care of, uh, it just makes it easier to communicate. So you have a bit more of a management interaction role um, with your organization. 
Yes. So I am the uh, chief financial officer, but also the director of marketing. Um, but you know, obviously, is the person in house who's had the most field experience and up and down the ladder in different positions. Um, you know, I was key in the design, but not the implementation of uh, Archeogen and some other stuff that we're working on right now. I believe Russell has a question for you about work life and how that works out with archaeology. Yeah, Chris, I have to feel that I sympathize with you because I'm sitting here bouncing my son, Nova, on my knee while we're recording this podcast. And that's one of the main reasons that I started my own business was to somehow have a way to keep my hand in archaeology, but also, you know, be at home uh, most nights and see my wife and see my son as he's growing up. So it's really neat to hear that you you took that leap because I think sometimes that's hard to see how if you don't go the traditional route in archaeology, how are you going to be able to keep up with it? Yeah, and you know I might still be looking for a job in a few months. We'll see. <laughs> I'll see how this uh, pans out. But so far we've been getting really good traction and a lot of uh, uh, we have a lot of we have projects planned with a, a mix of academics, contractors, and agencies in four states right now. So uh, if we can just keep doing like we've been doing, I, I think it'll all work out. And so just a quick question about how many people are on your team in your company and how did you come to meet them as an archaeologist? Uh, so first off, uh, we, we are, we're a young startup, so nobody is getting a salary yet. <laughs> um, but we have uh, two developers, um, myself, we're currently... Um, searching for someone uh, to fill some other roles, um, but not in archaeology, more of a finance, uh, corporate management kind of uh, role. Uh, and, and then we have our, you know, I, I guess we have our board of directors, but that's you know, shareholders, <laughs> uh, the bosses, um, which a lot of that's me, but not all of it. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about, uh, you know, if you're an archaeologist that wants to get started creating your own business, it sounds like you've got a pretty good size startup going that's more than, you know, just you hanging out a shingle for yourself. Uh, could you maybe give our listeners some insight into what that process was like for you? Uh, yeah, so the first thing is uh, I hope you have some savings because even if you're not hemorrhaging money, you still got to eat to live, right? And money costs, uh, you know, food costs money. <laughs> um, so the, the big thing is have a, a clear idea of what you want to do. Um, how can you add value to something that someone else will then want to pay for? That's really, you know, what it's all about is what can I do for someone else that they would then, you know, let me grind out a little profit along the way. Yeah, the paperwork can be daunting if you're not familiar with it. Um, I ran some side businesses while I was in the field because, you know, you go back to your hotel room, you're not where you want to be, which is home, but you, you know, not getting paid for it either. So um, I had some experience at least in, you know, incorporating and starting up a business. Uh, you can, you could probably uh, get started for you know, 300 bucks. You know, you can incorporate a business, set up some bank accounts, get a corporate credit card. Um, the big thing is, uh, you know, if you have halfway decent credit, um, because you'll have to co-sign for anything. And, uh, and, and then the, the big thing is just make sure that <laughs> you work on something every day because you have to be very self Because <laughs> uh, uh, it helps to write down a goal and then every day do something. <laughs> you got to do something, even if it, it's not real useful uh, and you have to go back and redo it later. 
uh, just staying in motion is very important. So just one question, I'll let uh, kind of Doug take over. Uh, Chris, what other businesses did you run? Because I've read a lot of statistics on startups especially, far better odds of succeeding in your second, third, fourth venture than in your first. Can you maybe talk about some of those that you ran while you were a field tech? Because I know myself, that's how I taught myself coding, was at night on my MacBook sitting in the middle of a, a hotel in Wells, Nevada with not much else to do in town. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so let's see. Originally, way back in the day, uh, back during the Great Recession, I tried to start a T-shirt business. It did not do very well. <laughs> I did not lose money, but I didn't sell very many T-shirts. It's a crowded market. Uh, and then later, I uh, tried to start a company that uh, basically did lead generation for uh, CRM firms. Um, again, didn't lose money, but didn't could not support myself with that. Uh, and then much more successfully uh, on the side the last few years, um, uh, I did, I was into uh, search engine optimization for, uh, as, a, as a contractor for clients that wanted to advertise online. Uh, you know, like when you type in something in Google and you see a bunch of ads on the right-hand side, you know, I had a few clients that I helped for them, and it's a eat-what-you-can-kill model, like... Uh, I think my biggest client like sold vacuum cleaner bags, easyvacuum.com or, or something like that. Um, and then obviously this is the first time that I've actually tried to make a full-time job out of, a, out of a startup. When you branched out into doing SEO, did you start out with, I guess, archaeology and sort of heritage in that area? Or did how did you get started into sort of doing you know, search engine op optimization? Yeah, so uh, this was, you know, a few years ago, so it was much less automated now. I'm sure now you see a lot of the clickbait stuff, like three weird tr tricks to do whatever. Uh, a lot of that stuff is automated now. Um, it was more of a Wild West. Anybody could learn by doing, you know, especially since I was operating under an eat-what-you-kill model if I didn't, if I couldn't provide conversions for clients under the agreed upon price, I didn't get paid. Obviously they could lose money too if I blew out the budget, but I wasn't getting any of it. Um, so I, it was very much a learn by doing and I think it was, a, <laughs> I think I finally figured out like really uh, a lot of the, the tricks that worked at the time uh, for, uh, I think it was working, I think it was like the client was a plastic surgeon in California or something that was advertising. So, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's not something that you can easily get into as a small player now because a lot of it is getting automated. So the only clients that are really up for grabs are those that do like daily or weekly sales, things that need a lot of maintenance and, um, and updating constantly because things that are more static campaigns uh, really can just survive in automation now. And why did you go from you know search engine optimization to your current job working on tablets and um, automating field work for archaeologists? Well, I wanted to support myself while I was at home, and this was a little more vision. The 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 the, the SEO work was mostly. I'm stuck in a hotel room, what else? You know, I might as well make a little money <laughs> while I'm doing it. Uh, whereas this is actually more uh, more passion driven because uh, it's it's archaeology. I love archaeology. I want to make it you know faster, more reliable, and more enjoyable for people. If people don't have to push as much paper, 
then they can dig more holes. And if you dig more holes, you find more cool stuff and you can learn things and have good times. Uh, I don't think anybody goes onto a project and comes off saying, man, you know, the best part of that survey, oh man, you know, I just really enjoyed filling out all those shuffle test forms. Man, paperwork. That's the best part. So much fun. Earlier you'd mentioned you'd met your wife uh, doing archaeology. Did I hear that correctly? Uh, n no, I, uh, I, I met her online. It works. I mean, I guess archaeology had something to do with it because uh, a, a good friend of mine, Richard Friedman, uh, was on eHarmony, and a bunch of us had gone out drinking. We were working some job in Pennsylvania. Came back to the hotel. And he was like, oh, you know, I had a reputation. I don't know if it was deserved or not at the time for being good with words. And uh, he, he wanted my help in writing an email reply to some girl he was communicating with in eHarmony. Anyway, then we get back out to the, the picnic table in the hotel courtyard and we keep drinking with our friends. We kept drinking and kept drinking. I woke up the next morning and I had an email in my inbox that I had <laughs> that I had signed up for eHarmony. So I'd paid for it for three months, uh, unbeknownst to me. I have no idea what I put in all this, the questions that they, you know, the, that they find out about your personality. Um, but it connected me to my wife. I went on only eHarmony data ever went on, and it worked out great. Um, so yeah, <laughs> kind of kind of tangential to archaeology. If I'd not been drinking with other archaeologists, I probably wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't have signed up. So Chris, starting out this new business, um, and obviously you've started out many new businesses, what is the sort of the hardest part? Can you tell people who are possibly thinking of doing similar work what's probably the first step that they need to do and probably what's the hardest part or what they should expect? So if it depends on if people are looking to do something on the side which I think is a lot easier because you don't have to, you don't have that pressure to support yourself. Um, or if you want to do something full-time, uh, if you want to do something full-time, just remember that it's a complex problem. No one else has done it before. If they have, then the problem would be easier to solve. Uh, so you just have to break it down in pieces. Sometimes you don't, you, you know that there's a bottleneck ahead of you, but there's a couple problems to solve before you get there. You just have to have faith that, once you you'll solve solve it when you get there you'll cross that bridge when you come to it uh, and you will continue to have issues things will come up like oh you know there's some issue with my sales tax license or um, there there's some oh why can't I you know, oh you know there will be lots of things that are completely unrelated to your core business that you don't have any expertise in that you have to deal with like oh how do I market this stuff now that I uh, now, now that I have, uh, you know, this this great product, how do I get the word out? Oh, I don't know how to advertise, especially since, you know, you think, oh, well, there's only 450 or so companies in the U.S. that you that do CRM, which I can just call them all up and they'll just knock down my door and be like, take my money. Um, but you know, things that you just don't have any expertise in and you don't expect, uh, you just have to be patient, think about them. I'm a big fan of just breaking things down into small steps and, and make sure you do something even if you have to redo it later. Yeah, Chris, when we were talking previously about your work on Archaeogen and then especially how you have some more projects that you're working on in the future, 
uh, it sounded to me a little bit like the lean startup suggestion of get, you know, something out there that's small and then iterate and kind of make shifts and changes as you need to in response to market feedback. Um, have you done any business reading that you'd like to suggest to our readers or do you have other models that you've kind of followed in learning from your previous business work? So um, particularly if you're thinking down the road of a, a long-term viable thing that, that needs constant innovation, get your minimum viable product out the door. Whatever, whatever you can start making a profit on, get that out the door and then start investing in other stuff. Um, for instance, there's no point in, there was no point in us going straight to having both a field tech version and a crew chief version of Archeogen. Um, if people didn't want it for their field techs, they're not going to want it for their crew chiefs, but people can use, you know, crew chiefs can still take notes the old fashioned way until we get something, you know, set up for them. Um, is just a good example. Or phase two, phase three version. If people don't want it for phase one, there's not much sense in trying to tie people into a, a phase two, phase three. Um, so uh, make sure you invest in order <laughs> uh, with your time and your money uh, because uh, you, there's nothing worse than you know, making something perfect when if you had just tried it when it was merely good, you would have found out that it wouldn't have worked. Uh, fail fast, fail cheap. I guess that's the that's the short answer. And Chris, since you sort of have hired other developers and so forth, do you have some advice for listeners who maybe have like a similar great idea they want to do but don't sort of have the technical skills? How would you go about finding someone who could do programming and what advice would you have for hiring someone who can do programming other than, you know, using Craigslist or Gumtree or something like that and hoping for the best? Yeah, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> First of all, uh, look for somebody that's in your area so that you can physically meet them if you need to. Uh, we did most of our weekly conference calls for the outsourced portion. Um, we, we used phone calls, but it was, you know, you, you need to be able to meet people in person. Um, so that's the first thing is look, just type into Google, um, whatever kind of program you're trying to do, whether it's mobile, um, desktop, whatever, uh, find shops around you that, that do that, um, and solicit bids from all of them, uh, put together a document, uh, stating if you have any technical expertise at all, uh, exactly what you want, because people will give you exactly what you want. <laughs> and so if you, you forget something, you're going to be screwed. Because uh, uh, it's very mechanical how people work, uh, particularly coders. You know, they'll they'll give you exactly what you ask for. So um, so look for places that are close by, uh, bid out to as many places as you can, uh, at least ten, uh, because then you can take the say the three lowest bids and then pick the best quality one. Uh, bids will be all over the map probably, uh, and so will quality. Uh, make sure people are very clear about what you're trying to contract them to do. Uh, make sure that you you ask for a sample of code if you have any coding experience at all or have a friend that does. Some people write clean code, some people don't. Um, if you see, if you know even a little bit about the code, if you ask for just a sample of some code, you know just a few lines of code from any program they've ever written. Um, if there's a bunch of gobbledygook, then it, it'll be obvious to anybody that's done any coding. Um, because there's more than one way to get functionality, and if there's a bunch of random stuff, it means they were just banging away, and then they're like, oh, it worked, and they don't want to touch anything to clean it up to simplify it. And that makes adding onto it much harder later. Uh, it can also slow down your 
your your app and have other side effects. Uh, and then uh, I guess the final thing is make sure that the code is because they will deliver the code to you at the end of the contract. Um, make sure you have them store it somewhere like GitHub or somewhere else uh, in case they get hit by a bus or you need to fire them halfway through so that you have your code and you can see the updates. We're going to take a short break here and be back right more with some good business advice and some technology uh, experience with uh, Chris Cameron of Field Technologies Incorporated. But first, we'd like to thank one of our sponsors that helps us bring you this podcast. If you're interested in being a, sp a sponsor of the Archaeotech Podcast, you can contact Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Okay, we've got Jordan from The Art of Charm back with us. Jordan, what have you had on The Art of Charm podcast lately? Actually, we had a lot of really interesting guests lately. I've had a bunch of entrepreneurs come on and talk about their mindsets and methodologies for getting ahead and kind of keeping the hustle going even when you don't feel like it. I had a guy come on and talk about self-defense, but not from like a how-to perspective, but more of the mindset of somebody who survives deadly attacks, which I thought was really interesting. And we had the founder of Pencils of Promise, which is a really large charity that builds schools in third world countries, come and talk about actually making your kind of your passion, for lack of a better word, happen in reality. He used to be a finance guy and he bounced and started this uber successful charity. So we talk about that process as well. And uh, we've actually had some people come on and talk about networking. One of the guys that talked about it was a military special forces guy who was in Afghanistan. And he's talking about how he built relationships with people in the Taliban and things like that to save lives. So if he can do it, we can do it for business and academic purposes, of course. Great. Yeah, I've heard a few of those already. And that Pencils for Promise one was, uh, was incredibly inspiring. So what have you got coming up for the month of April? Uh, I've actually got a bunch of really talented guests coming in. I've got Gretchen Rubin. She's going to come up real soon where she's actually talking about happiness and how your brain works and how your brain measures happiness and things we can do day to day, actual habits to help make us quote unquote happier. I've got this guy, Nev Medora. He's a friend of mine, but he talks about crashing parties, not just for the sake of quote unquote crashing the party and getting into an exclusive event, but using that to sort of meet important people and that's a really useful skill set even if you don't plan on crashing parties he has some really good sort of life hacky ideas that go along with it and i've got simon sinek coming on to talk about leadership he actually helped develop the zappos culture and is a, a business thought leader of the highest caliber and last but not least i have olivia fox cabane author of the charisma myth she's actually going to be talking about the brain science involved in her new book that's coming out like a year from now but we get a sneak peek at that as well and that's uh that's all coming up in april awesome well be sure to check out the art of charm podcast wherever you find podcasts when the show is over you can find them also at www.artofcharm.com so chris it sounds like when you're starting to talk about hiring outside developers and dealing with contracts and those other things um, at what point did you find it useful in kind of this company, maybe even your previous companies, to seek the advice of a lawyer or attorney, which I think can seem daunting to many people that aren't already in business, is, hey, big scary, I know lawyers are expensive. How does that process even work? Yeah, so lawyers are very expensive, especially good ones. Um, you do not need a lawyer for your basic business startup, and as long as um, when you're contracting with a developer, you're probably fine without a lawyer, um, though if you don't feel comfortable reading the contract, uh, then 
obviously contact a lawyer, but you probably don't need an expensive one. Uh, now, once we were selling stuff and you know we were no longer the customer but the seller, you, you start taking on a lot of liabilities. Um, we actually use uh, our lawyer used to be the head lawyer over at SAS. <laughs> if you're familiar with them, they're a big um, statistical software uh, company. Um, and so we we paid up and it has been worth it to write our contracts um, because she has a lot of experience uh, writing software uh, contracts, particularly software as a service. So that way you can limit your liability. Other people can limit theirs to you. Uh, and it just it makes remedying disputes a lot easier because the the worst thing is not is ambiguity. <clears throat> Uh, you know, for instance, you know, not knowing who, and, and like to take our case, for example, who owns the data once it's on our servers? Well, you know, obviously our client, you would normally say, obviously the client owns their data because it's not ours. Um, but if it's not, if that's not clear, that's, it's not clear. Um, and that's, you know, we can't share clients data with other people. It's, it's their data. They own it. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you need lawyers for is to make sure things are ironclad. Um, when there's money on the table, if it's uh, if it's just you, um, you know, hiring somebody, you're if it's something simple, you're probably all right without a lawyer. And Chris, I know that you know you're definitely talking about hiring developers and outside people, but I really liked your point about, especially if you have enough coding knowledge, just a little bit, to be able to kind of sniff check and tell whether it looks like it's clean code. And you mentioned in a previous podcast that you also know a little bit of VB Basic. Uh, Visual Basic in order to do macros in Excel. Maybe tell our listeners a little bit about how you taught yourself that and maybe the reasons why it was useful to know how to program even just a little bit. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's mostly uh, it's mostly to be able to talk to people who know more than you um, in general. Um, Visual Basic is really easy. Anybody can learn it. There's lots of YouTube videos. There's lots of uh, articles. Um, you can also just go down to Barnes & Noble and buy a big book of Excel <laughs> formulas. Um, so eventually you learn what is logical in that language because every, every language is, is different, obviously. Um, but Visual Basic is very easy to learn, which is good because it's for Excel. <laughs> Never under, if you can pick up a book, you can learn how to do it. It's, it's not as hard as, as, it's not sorcery. <laughs> it's not some kind of black magic. I think people people overestimate how hard it is. We're almost towards the end now, and just a couple of more questions about sort of businesses and setting up side businesses and stuff, um, just because I'm sure, you know, most of our listeners will be archaeologists, and we all have kind of thought about or have started our own side business sort of stuff. Did you naturally go towards web second jobs, as it were, or side businesses because you could do it at your hotel, or was that something, did you try other businesses that, you know, were more, you know, brick, brick and mortar? Do you have any experience with that and any suggestions for people who are thinking about doing a second business or a side business while doing archaeology? Yeah, so uh, it was, I was definitely going for things that could be done from the hotel room on the side. And a lot of people do things like I have a friend who teaches English online to people in Italy. Um, I uh, have a friend who writes copy for websites, you know, um, trying to think other examples. Um, you know, I did the search engine optimization thing. Uh, it's some people do tutoring. Um, that's a little harder if you're moving around a lot. Um, 
but there are often a lot of great services that have a lot of great marketplaces for these things for freelancers like for tutoring there's a site called WizAnt, W-Y-Z-A-N-T. Um, for search engine optimization, there's one called Trada, T-R-A-D-A. A lot of all of these have made up names, obviously. Uh, for just if you can crank out a lot of legible stuff, uh, you can write copy for things uh, at a place called Text Broker. Uh, and uh, and then and then there's the one-off stuff like just connecting with uh, universities, etc. To like I say, do things like teach English or, or proofread. I know a lot of people who copy edit. Um, particularly for students, graduate students who English is their second language. That's a, that's another thing you can do. In uh, building the application, Archeogen that you've been working with, uh, you mentioned that it was on iOS for a couple of reasons, due to data security and due to take some advantage of some of the uh, hardware features. Um, can you tell us maybe a little bit about what it's like to develop an iOS application with your team and maybe how it is going through, if you're having to go through the Apple Store and their Apple review process, which is sometimes notorious for blocking applications for reasons as small as an icon they don't like. Yeah, so uh, to, to start with the App Store, um, Apple offers two different developer licenses. There's the kind that goes through the App Store, uh, which we do not have. Archeogen is not available in the App Store. Uh, and, then, and then the Enterprise Developer, which is more for in-house apps or for um, ones that will be directly distributed like ours. Uh, because it's only for uh, it's only for people who have uh, signed an agreement with us to because otherwise they can upload data and then you know they're not going to do anything with it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the the big thing with Apple is you know get a developer who has done it before, <laughs> particularly the non App Store route. There there are usually three or four different ways to go about it. Um, and your developer, if you're contracting or if you have someone on your team, maybe a business partner who's experienced with it, can direct you as to what the best choice is for you. Uh, and Apple offers their developers um, some tools. Uh, one of them is called Test Flight uh, that, <clears throat> that allows you, you know, for uh, emulating it on different devices to, to make sure things work uh, in, in a way that's Apple approved. Uh, I would also point out with Apple, they just switched. They're just they're transitioning to a different language, uh, coding language it's called Swift. Um, so Archeogen is written in the newest and, and best uh, uh, language, so that'll make it easier to do updates in the future. But um, you can still do um, other languages now, but I would not recommend it if you're at this moment, in the next few months, going to um, try to start coding something for iOS. Take the time to learn Swift, because in a year or two you'll have to, you know, transition to Swift anyway. Interesting. So you suggest Swift, Swift over doing Objective C, which I think has been the language used up till now. Yes, uh, because Objective C, there, Apple's trying to to move away from Objective C to Swift. I'm unclear as to what the reasons were, but I'm sure they they have good ones. Um, to us, it, it, it was good timing that we came along right as they announced this. So uh, we, we went ahead and, and did everything in Swift. It sounds like you have quite a bit of experience uh, looking around and sort of pricing these things for developers. If someone is interested and is listening, could you give us sort of a range of what what prices people are looking at when they look at app development? Yeah, so it's going to be all over the map. Uh, you'll have people who will 
maybe they're brand new or really hungry, need some work, uh, who might lowball you like a hundred bucks an hour. Um, so, so, so most places will want to do a lump sum bid, you know, half now, half later. I highly recommend if you're the risk-taking type, which if you're starting a business, that you do hourly, <laughs> uh, because then any gains are savings for you. Um, whereas if it goes over budget anyway, for lump sum they just would have you know cut a bunch of corners. So if it goes over budget, you're at least you have to pay more, but you're at least still getting the quality that you want. And if it comes in under budget, you're the one that saves money. Uh, so just as an aside, I would highly recommend trying to find someone who is willing to work hourly, uh, but to the completion of the project, not just like ad hoc, you know, I have a few hours here and there. Um, yeah, and then you're also going to find companies that, you know, shops that will, or independent developers that will, they can't back out of the driveway for less than $50,000. So it's, it's going to be all over the map. Um, also make sure that you look at their portfolio of apps that they've put together before. Uh, and if, if it's anything like Archeogen, you know, there were not a lot of comparable uh, apps that people had done. Um, so it was actually really very few of the, of the developers. And I live in a, a very technologically savvy area. We're, you know, we're on tap to get Google Fiber, hooray. Um, and even here, a lot of the places had not done a lot of enterprise apps. They did a lot of consumer-oriented, you know, games and stuff like that. So um, I recommend, you know, if you see somebody that's done a lot of work for like hospitals or universities or, you know, Fortune 500 companies, uh, that's uh, that's a good sign. <laughs> um, but yeah, the prices are going to be all over the map. And you know, and if you're doing it yourself. I would almost say even if you can do it yourself, hire somebody to work on pieces of it with you because otherwise you're not going to get it done quickly enough. And we've seen a lot of advantage to being first to market, um, which I don't know if that's strictly true, but we don't really have a lot of competitors. Uh, what few other software packages are out there are really more of a Swiss Army knife that try to do everything, whereas you know we're a screwdriver. We do one thing and we do it really, really well. Um, yeah, so, which also brings me to the point that you should pay close attention to timeline, uh, you know, when people think something will get done, because the last thing you want is, you know, a uh, developer takes your project, but then they take several other big ones, and then you're bottom of the pile, because you're not a, you know, multi-million dollar customer. <laughs> um, and I would also go ahead and offer, if you have the money up front, and you're not raising it as you go, uh, offer to buy their overtime uh, because a lot of times, uh, you know, companies, they, they might know that they're going to be really jammed in November, but in October they have a light schedule and be happy to fill in their time with, with you. I mean, as long as you can get it still at the same price, not at overtime hours price, but uh, uh, that you'll, you'll buy as much of their time as, as they will give you is also helpful. So, Chris, I have a couple of questions off, based off of that. One is, what sort of a, a realistic timeline people should be thinking about when they have an app? And I know this is going to vary based off of you know how complex the app is, but can you give us sort of an idea of if someone's wanting to hire someone to do an app, what sort of time frame they're looking at? Yeah, it's going to vary. Uh, I would say 10, 10 weeks is probably pushing it. Um, 
it, it a lot of it has to do with <clears throat> a lot of it has to do with how how rigorously you test it, both your alpha uh, yourself and your your beta in front of other people. And Chris, without giving away too many trade secrets, there you're talking you know fairly large sums of money. Was there any tricks about how you guys or how did you guys go about raising the money to pay for your app? Um, any advice based off of that to any of our listeners? Yeah, so uh, Field Technologies was self-funded um, out of personal savings from people uh, that were involved. I am the um, overwhelming majority shareholder, so uh, a lot of that goes to me. But um, I would, if you really have a lot of faith in your idea, I would try to get a loan rather than bring in another investor. Because if you really think it's going to be good, then um, you know you don't want to share the profits more than you have to. All right. Well, thank you, Chris. That was excellent, and thank you for all the advice to our listeners about setting up a company, um, app development, and all sorts of wonderful things. That is the end of today's episode. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you out in the field. Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.